Hello, and welcome to Stories from A to Z with Mona P. I'm your host, Mona Pasanoff. Today's guest is Kenny Coogan of Critter Companions, speaking to us about carnivorous plants and the first annual World Carnivorous Plant Day on May 5th. Kenny is full of information about everything carnivorous. I first met him when I was volunteering at the local zoo. He was inviting and friendly, and we became friends immediately. He is one of the most intelligent and talented men I know. You are sure to learn a lot from this episode. If you haven't had a chance to check out my Stories from A to Z Facebook page, you may want to. There's a few photos of carnivorous plants and Kenny. Hi, Kenny. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you, Mona, for having me. I am a big fan. Thank you. Today, we're going to concentrate on carnivorous plants. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? And if not Florida, what brought you here? I grew up in Niagara Falls. I was pretty much raised at the Aquarium of Niagara. I went to summer camps there and then I started working there when I was 16. I graduated from the University of Buffalo with a degree in animal behavior. And then a few years after that, I moved to Tampa to work at a zoo. And that is where I met you. And we've been friends for many, many years. This is true. As I said, we're going to focus on the topic of carnivorous plants. Can you give a brief overview of what a carnivorous plant is and where you are likely to find them? Sure. Carnivorous plants are angiosperms, which means they are flowering plants. There's around 800 different species of carnivorous plants. Here in Florida, we have the most out of any of the states. We have 34, 35 different species. And the ones in Florida, you can find them at bogs or swampy areas, areas that are always wet. And around the world, you can find carnivorous plants on every continent except for Antarctica. When I went to Iceland a few years ago, I was surprised by how many carnivorous plants I saw there. But other carnivorous plants live in jungles. Some of them are aquatic, some of them are terrestrial, and some of them grow on trees. Thank you. What is terrestrial? Terrestrial are ones that grow on the ground. Oh. And then there's also the epiphytic ones that grow up in the trees. Okay. Some are fully aquatic that are under the water. Some of them are on the surface of the water. Excellent. When did you first become interested in them? What was the draw for you? Growing up, I had literally hundreds of backyard poultry. I had ducks, geese, chickens, pigeons. Once I reached that quota, my parents said, no more. But I wanted something else. As a lifelong vegetarian, I thought it would be so comical to have carnivorous plants. And my parents would not object to a carnivorous plant because it wasn't an animal. It didn't take a lot of space. And I really fell in love with them. Sadly, I killed them very soon, which is a common story for anybody who's just getting into carnivorous plants. 
Then in high school, the hall monitor, the person who like watches for student behavior, he came and gave a guest presentation in the biology class about carnivorous plants. He brought in a couple different plants so we could see them up close. He gave like a great one hour presentation and I was probably the only student out of the 120 kids that day who were interested and I talked to him after the class and then the next day he gifted me two carnivorous plants. Excellent. I just want to go back to you mentioned that most people who start out with these plants usually kill them. Why is that? There's over 800 different species of carnivorous plants. And while they're all very different and they are from different continents and different ecosystems, they all require pretty much three basic principles. The commonly cared for carnivorous plants that people keep are counterintuitive to a typical house plant or a typical landscape plant. All carnivorous plants would benefit from purified water. And that means that when you have a carnivorous plant, you should be giving it rainwater or distilled water only. Mineral water, Brita water, filtered water from your fridge, well water is not purified enough. It still has minerals, uh, different chemicals like chlorine or fluoride in it, which will accumulate in the soil and be the, to the detriment of your plant. So the first thing is they need purified water. And when you water them, most carnivorous plants that you care for, like Venus flytrap, sundews, and North American pitcher plants, like to be sitting in water. So they need to be very wet all the time. So a lot of times people, you know, are keeping a house plant, they get nervous about overwatering it, which will turn the leaves yellow, but carnivorous plants like to be sitting in a lot of water. So in addition to purified water, they need to be moist and wet all the time, and they will not forgive you if you let them dry out. Another reason why people often kill them is because they do not provide enough light. Even though these plants like to be wet, they really require a lot of sun. And indoor lighting plants on the windowsill isn't probably going to make it. So Venus flytraps, pitcher plants from North America, and sundews need full, full light. Okay, and when you say full, full light, do you mean full sun? Yeah, or? I'm sorry. I mean full sun. So don't put them under a tree, don't put them in your windowsill. The more light you can give them, the brighter they become and the stronger they will grow. Another reason why carnivorous plants are often killed is because they cannot handle any fertilizers. So they've evolved for millions of years to get their nutrients from the prey that they eat. If you give them normal potting soil, which oftentimes has fertilizer or you know extra minerals in it, they can't handle it and they'll die. Most carnivorous plants do really well in 100% long fiber sphagnum moss or in a combination of play sand and peat moss. And they do not do well with any supplemental fertilizers, including foliar fertilizers. That's really interesting. I would never have known that. You have given talks to local libraries in the Tampa area. I attended one of them a long time ago. What do you think it is that people are fascinated about and why they come 
to hear about them. I just finished a 100-page book on Florida's carnivorous plants. And for the past couple of hundred of years, scientists have been fascinated by carnivorous plants. It was only up until about 150 years ago that people would even accept the idea that plants could eat bugs. So I think people like carnivorous plants for the fact that they eat bugs. A lot of people have the misconception that they will take care of your pests. So sadly, that is not true. You would need a whole swarm of carnivorous plants in order to take care of your pest control. But they will eat uh, fungus gnats and pesky things like flies. No carnivorous plants will eat mosquitoes. Everybody wants a carnivorous plant that eats a mosquito. But mosquitoes are attracted to blood and carnivorous plants do not have blood. Carnivorous plants, generally speaking, produce nectar. So they're attracting things that like sweet things like wasps and moths and fruit flies and houseflies. And bees? Some carnivorous plants do eat bees, but you should not be overly concerned about them eating the native bee population because carnivorous plants in Florida are native. There's carnivorous plants everywhere. And carnivorous plants have evolved this really cool separation between their flowers and their traps. So usually in the spring, when carnivorous plants flower, their flowers are much higher in relationship to a little bug. Six inches, 12 inches higher than the traps. And the traps have a certain scent and the flowers have a certain scent. So they'll attract bees and butterflies to the flower and they'll attract other things to the trap. Like Venus flytraps, for instance, even though they're called Venus flytraps, the thing that they eat the most are spiders. And that's because spiders are on the ground crawling around but it just happened that 100, 200 years ago, the governor of North Carolina, he saw a fly get eaten by a Venus flytrap, and he reported that, and that's the misnomer. Of how it got its name. That's interesting. You are presently writing a book about carnivorous plants. What kind of research did you have to do for it? Is it a how-to that will benefit beginners? The book is at the publisher now, which I'm very happy to say. So I have a lot of experience growing carnivorous plants in Florida. My hobby turned into a little side business. And with that experience, I was able to write the book. But I also wanted to give a shout out to that hall monitor that I had mentioned earlier. And he is not on Facebook. He retired a couple of years ago. So I looked up his address because I had gone over to his house many times to see his beautiful daylilies, his carnivorous plant population, he had a pond, and I wrote him an old school letter with a stamp and everything to my excitement. He wrote back a few days later, and we've been going back and forth. He gave me a couple of photos of him and carnivorous plants that will be in the foreword of the book, and I'm really happy that we were able to reconnect. He also sent me a chunk of a cactus, the carrion cactus, that has this big starfish-shaped flower, and it smells like dead animals, rotten meat, and it attracts flies. So that was very nice of him. So is that a plant that you would place near the carnivorous plants, and because of the smell, it will attract the flies, and then that's more food for the carnies? Yeah, I think that would be a great companion plant 
for the carnivorous plants. So I reached out to Mr. Bruce Herman to finalize the book. When I was researching the book, I have a lot of regular customers and some of them are people who work in like the parks and rec department and people who work in the forestry. So I was talking to them and they were able to provide a lot of photos of plants that people would never see otherwise. Some of the native plants that we have here in Florida are microscopic. The flowers are some of the, some of the smallest flowers in the world. It's not the smallest though. They have field photos of the flower next to a ruler, which is so great for the readers to be able to see because you would just be walking by and you wouldn't even notice that you're in the same environment as a carnivorous plant. If someone was thinking about starting to keep and grow carnivorous plants, where or how should they begin? Where do they get them and what do they start to do? To purchase a carnivorous plant, I would avoid the big box stores because sometimes when they have Venus flytraps or Saracenia in these containers, in the, the people on the inn, we call them death cubes because that company is a great company. However, during the transportation and when they get to the nursery, the people who are taking care of the landscape plants and the annuals and the edibles, they give them the same treatment as all the other plants. So they probably don't water them enough. They probably are giving, I know for a fact, they're giving them hose water, which has inappropriate minerals and chemicals in it. If you want to buy carnivorous plants, you can check out different native societies. You can check out, um, your best bet probably is to go online. I have a small carnivorous plant business if you're in Florida. I do ship across the country. I have about a thousand carnivorous plants in stock right now. I have Nepenthes, which are the Asian pitcher plants. I have Saracenia, which are the North American pitcher plants. I have different uh, Venus flytraps, some Pinguiculas, and some Utricularias. You can find plants from the native nurseries. You can buy plants from me. You can buy plants online. And if you just type in carnivorous plants for sale, you're going to find a lot of really large nurseries in North America. There's some really, a really famous nursery in Australia. There's another really famous nursery in England. And people who specialize in carnivorous plants are your best bet because they will know how to care for them and they know how to ship them. And carnivorous plants ship really well during COVID. I sold hundreds and hundreds of them, I think, because people who started in the hobby, were bored, and they needed more plants to quench their thirst for. Can you give a rough estimate of what it would cost for a, a beginning plant? Sure. One of the easiest carnivorous plants to start with is called Drosera capensis, which is the Cape Sundew. It's from South Africa. They are really good for the windowsill. They're also good for outdoors when it's between 60 and 90 degrees Fahrenheit. They still need to be sitting in water. Another great thing about them is that you can propagate them yourself. They'll flower, you'll get a ton of seeds, you can keep sowing those seeds. You can also rip a leaf off 
and lay it on the soil surface and that will grow another plant. So those cost about eight or ten dollars per plant and by the end of the summer you'll probably have two or four and then the next year you have probably 20. Venus flytraps cost about five to ten dollars for a typical Venus flytrap and there's only one species of Venus flytrap. But what people have done is they've cloned them through tissue clones and they have been able to get different traits come out. So you can get one that's solid red, you can get one that has really big teeth, you can get one that's on really tall stalks, you can get one that looks like a funnel. And the more bizarre and mutated they are, the more expensive they are. So those that are really mutated, those cost between $20 and $60. There's one that's called Biohazard, and it's all melted and mutated, and I love it. <laughs> all right, then. This episode is airing during the week of the first annual World Carnivorous Plant Day, hosted by the International Carnivorous Plant Society, ICPS for short. As the education director of ICPS, can you tell us how the idea for this day was developed and what you hope to gain from it? In 2020, a member of ICPS, Dr. Chris Banis from Poland, he reached out to the board and he said, wouldn't it be great if we had a day that celebrated carnivorous plants? And as a new board member and as the education director, I love that idea. I love that idea because it's going to reach a lot of people, bring people to the hobby, show people that carnivorous plants are beautiful in addition to their cool evolution. A lot of carnivorous plants, they're disproportionately endangered or threatened because they require these pristine habitats. Some of it's due to poaching, but because tissue culture is so popular, and because people back in the 70s poached so many, people can't even find them in the wild to poach anymore. So right now, the biggest threat to carnivorous plants is the climate changing and agriculture and new housing developments. And I wrote, sadly, a lot about that for my Florida book. A lot of times people will go to a site, see this huge swarm of carnivorous plants, and then a few years later, when they return, it's just trapped housing. When Dr. Chris Banis proposed this idea, we had a lot of options to go with. So on Wednesday, May 5th, we will be doing a virtual dissemination of everything carnivorous plants. I've reached out to the biggest nurseries around the world. I've reached out to scientists from around the world, and I've reached out to educators, teachers, and students. On Wednesday, every hour on the hour, we plan on releasing different videos between 5 and 15 minutes. Some of them are for professionals, people who have doctorates. Some of them are for nurserymen. Some of them are for kids. But the goal is to highlight how cool carnivorous plants are and why we should save them. Can you tell us a little bit more specifics about the workshops on that day? Sure. So everything is free. Some of the videos are going to include 
middle school students from around the world interviewing scientists from around the world about their research interests and what they've learned about carnivorous plants in the last couple of years. Some of the videos are of children's book authors reading their carnivorous plants books. Some of the videos are of children book authors reading their books. And some of the videos are of our annual photo contest. We're also going to be showcasing the students from around the world art and the videos that people who are just getting into the hobby will be most excited about are of different nurserymen from around the world explaining the specifics on how to care for carnivorous plants. One video that people that are into the hobby are going to really appreciate is Dr. Barry Rice's segment. He is an astrobiologist, which means he's looking for life outside of this world, but he is so passionate about carnivorous plants that you will find his video insightful and very funny. Okay, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a great day. So I heard that sometimes as soon as the plant eats, it dies. Is that true? There's a little bit of truth to that. And this is another reason why people struggle with keeping carnivorous plants. And that is the ones that are commonly cared for that are from temperate areas, they hibernate. So that means in the North American species, from Thanksgiving to Valentine's Day, they will go dormant. They're gonna die back. There's gonna be a lot of brown leaves. Some of them go completely underneath the soil. And I'm fearful that when people are growing them and they see that, they throw them away, even though they're not dead, they're just dormant. Some species of sundews that are from Australia, they do the opposite. They hibernate in the hot summer and they're only active during the wet winters. So I think that's another trick. And if you have a plant inside your house on a windowsill, they will not tolerate the constant temperature. They need a range of temperatures to mimic what they would experience outdoors. So that's one part. But the other part that you were asking about is that after their trap operates, does the plant die? So a Venus fly trap, trap can only open and close three times and then it turns black and it dies. But each plant has five, 10, all the way up to 20, 30 traps on it. So that's just one plant. So every time you see a trap open, it is able to eat. So if you want, you could get this little bug gun from a store and you could vacuum up all these little bugs and feed them to your plant. Or if you have it outside, it'll just catch its food on its own. You don't really want to stick your finger in it and set off the trap though because that's wasting basically one of the three action potentials of the trap. Why do they die after three times? And who figured that out? That is a great question that I don't know the specific answer to, but I do know that just recently, in the past year or two, scientists from around the world are publishing how Venus flytraps can count. And if you Google that phrase, you'll be able to read the scientific article. Inside the Venus flytrap, 
there are two to four trigger hairs, and one trigger hair needs to be touched twice within 30 seconds to set the trap off. Does the Venus flytrap or any of these carnivorous plants, do they have the equivalent of a stomach? That's a good question. So Venus flytraps, each trap you can consider an external stomach. They have digestive enzymes in those lobes. And once they close down, as long as the insect struggles for a little bit, they will not reopen for about three to 10 days and they'll digest whatever organism fell prey to the plant. If you stick a stick in there or if you stick a dead organism in there, or if the animal is too small, after about an hour, the trap reopens and allows that animal to escape. Or if, it's, if you killed it, it's just gonna sit there and the plant, I know the plant can't think, but the plant's gonna think it's like a pebble or something and it's not gonna actively digest it. Pitcher plants that are from Southeast Asia or North America, they have these tall vessels, they're called tanks, some of them have lids that are directly over the tank to keep their digestive juices strong and so rainwater doesn't dilute them. So you can consider that an external stomach. Sundews and butterworts, their leaves are sticky and the bug will land on there, get stuck, and it'll just dissolve through the plant. This is all so interesting. You are sharing such incredible information. I know for me, I have in one of my many lives, great interest in biology and it makes me want to get one of these plants, but I have a feeling I would be one of those people that it would die. I promise that they're not that hard to care for. And me listening to the students interview these scientists from the, around the world, it reignited my interest in carnivorous plants. One of the most interesting concepts that is on the videos for World Carnivorous Plant Day is from a scientist in Japan and he noted that sundews are foraging together. Think of a pack of lions or a group of hyenas that are hunting together. These sundews, he says, are working together to catch larger food. That's pretty incredible. It gives a whole new aspect to the lives of plants. I want to thank you, Kenny. This has just been remarkable. And we may have to do a part two at some point because I may get one and then I'll have more questions. Is there anything else you would like to add? I would like to thank you. To learn more about the International Carnivorous Plant Society, go to carnivorousplants.org on our YouTube channel and on our Facebook channel, we'll be releasing the hourly videos on May 5th to celebrate World Carnivorous Plant Day. And to learn more about me, you can go to facebook.com slash crittercompanions or kennycoogan.com to see the carnivorous plants that I have in stock and to learn more about their care. All right, well, thank you very much for being here today. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Mona. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I would appreciate your sharing this podcast with your friends and family.
If you are on Instagram, please click to follow me. If you're listening on SoundCloud, give me a thumbs up and write a comment. I have noticed when people search for this podcast, sometimes you type in the whole title, sometimes just A to Z with Mona P. I am always looking for new and interesting people to interview. If you would like to share a part of your life, please contact me. Remember, everyone has a story to tell. The next episode will be available in two weeks, usually on a Monday. Till next time, this is Stories from A to Z with Mona P.